Many of you, no doubt, are familiar with Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Telltale Heart. Maybe you had to read it in junior high or high school like I had to. It's the story of a man who became obsessed with the eye of an old man who lived in his house. And here's how the narrator described the old man's eye that just drove him nuts. He says this, he had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, I don't know why he didn't tell the guy, your eye bothers me, wear a patch, but he killed him. He followed through in his plan to kill this eye, to get rid of the eye. And then he dismembered the man and put him under the flooring in his house. And then the cops came and began asking because they heard about this screech in the night. And then his conscience began hearing the beating heart of that old man until it drove him nuts. And he finally confessed his crime. A classic piece of literature. David is like that man in the telltale heart. David is obsessed with eyes in this psalm. He's obsessed with God's eyes. He's desperately trying to get God's attention, trying to get God to look at him. So he's obsessed with God's eyes, and he cries out to God in verse 2, and he says, let your eyes behold what is right. So David wants the Lord to open his eyes, if you will, and see what's happening in his life. And what's happening in David's life is this David is surrounded by people who want to kill him. And their eyes, David says in verse 11, are obsessed with seeing David cast down to the ground, seeing David die, and maybe they'll dismember him and hide his parts under the flooring of their homes. So there's this eye motif in this psalm. David is asking Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, to open his eyes and see what's happening in his life. And David's eyes are looking to the Lord, asking him to open his eyes, while David's enemy's eyes are set on taking David's life. It's an eye-opening psalm, if you will. And if the Spirit of God comes now and opens our eyes, opens the eyes of our hearts as we look at his word, then what we'll see today is this, is that God loves to show his love to desperate, stressed out, and scared to death sinners. Jesus loves to show his unconditional love, his steadfast love to desperate people, to people who feel hopeless, to people who feel like giving up. Jesus loves to come alongside you when you are stressed out and you don't know what to do. And you don't know what is happening in your life and you don't know why things are happening the way that they are. Jesus lives to love you in those moments. And when you're scared to death and you can't breathe and you can't sleep and you toss and turn in bed and you can't eat and you've lost your appetite and you're losing weight because you're not eating and you just feel like your world is crashing down around you. Jesus loves to show you his love in those moments. When you are at that place in your life, there is nowhere else that Jesus would rather be than right next to you. Isn't that wonderful? 
That is the gospel, my brothers and sisters. That is the good news that you can cling to when life is dark, when your future looks bleak, when you don't know what is going on, what the future holds. That's the gospel truth that you can hold on to. And that is the good news that Psalm 17 will speak to us this morning. So turn to Psalm 17. What we'll see in this psalm is that David's back is against the wall. He's on death row. People want to take him out. David's life is on the line. People want to kill him. They have his house surrounded. There have been drive-by shootings at David's house. David has real enemies who want nothing more than to see him dead, and they won't rest until David is zipped up in a body bag and carried off to a mortuary. In short, David is desperate, he is stressed out, and he is scared to death. Therefore, he is the perfect candidate for the love of God, the unconditional steadfast love of Jesus. But even though David is desperate and stressed out and scared to death, he comes across as kind of smug and self-righteous in this psalm. And you might be tempted to find fault with David a little because it kind of sounds like he's tooting his own horn here. It's like David has too high a view of himself in this psalm. He kind of comes off like a goody two-shoes. Let me show you. Look at verses one through five and hear the word of the Lord. Hear a just cause, O Yahweh, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried me. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now, when I read this, I want to say, wait a minute, David, hold on. Are you really claiming that your lips are free from any deceit? that you haven't sinned with your mouth, that your lips are really clean and pure, that you've never yelled at a curse at someone driving through a roundabout, David? You're telling me that you haven't slipped up, that your walk with God is this squeaky clean. I'm not buying it, David. That's how Psalm 17 reads to me. That's my first reaction to David's claims here. But this is what David says. He's saying that he's got his act together. But it's not what David means. David says this, but it's not what he means. David is not tooting his own spiritual horn here. Yes, he says that he is blameless, that his lips are pure, that he has not slipped spiritually. But he does not mean that he is blameless, meaning that he is perfect, that he is without sin. David is not saying that he is free from sin. David knows his sin. He knows he's a sinner. We saw this in Psalm 15 several weeks ago. No one is perfect. No human being is perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But when David compares himself with the men who want to kill him, when David compares himself with the men who have a knife to his neck, 
When David compares himself to the men who want to rip the flesh off of his bones, when David compares himself to the men who want to eat him up like a zombie, well then, yes, David looks like a saint. That's what David means here. The difference between David and his enemies is that David is in fellowship with Yahweh. David knows the Lord. He is forgiven. His enemies don't know the love of God. That's what separates David from his enemies. David's sins are forgiven. He is blameless and righteous in God's eyes. But other than that, David is just like his enemies. He's a sinner who is just as desperate for grace as his enemies. David struggles with sin, but not the same sin as his enemies. His enemies like to murder people. His enemies like to see people bleed to death. His enemies like to kill people, dismember them, and hide them under the floorings in their home. This is not David's struggle. He has other issues. And the same goes for us in our culture today. We are sinners who are, who are just as needy for grace as the average unbeliever. We need God's grace today as Christians just as much as the unbelieving homosexual. The difference between us and an unbeliever who is gay is that we as Christians are in union with Christ. But we still need God's grace as much as the homosexual. They need grace because they don't know Jesus. Those who are unbelievers, not those who are struggling with it. Christians who struggle with that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are unbelievers, who are homosexuals. They need grace because they don't know Jesus. And according to Romans 1, they have exchanged God's glory. And they're worshiping themselves. They have traded the glory of God for the worship of man. They have a worship problem. They're worshiping themselves and not God. So they need grace, saving grace. But we as Christians, as Christians who might even struggle with that temptation, we as Christians need grace too. And we need to be gracious in how we respond to the issue of homosexuality. We do not believe in, we do not support nor do we stand behind the recent Supreme Court decision on marriage. Here at Grace, at this church, we believe that marriage is a sacred institution ordained of God to display his glory by picturing the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his bride, the church. Here at Grace, we believe that marriage is a spiritual and physical union in which one man and one woman enter into a covenant with one another and a covenant with God. But we need grace God's grace as we interact with a culture and as we interact with people who do not believe this about marriage. And we need God's grace because even after we are born again, even after we are adopted into God's family, even after we have been brought together in union with Christ by faith, even then we are still sinners who choose sin all the time. So we need God's grace just as much as the abortion doctor. We may not be involved in abortion. We may not be killing innocent unborn babies or selling the body parts of aborted babies. God have mercy on our country. If we've got to the place where we are dismembering unborn babies and selling their body parts, God have mercy on our country. 
We may not even be doing those things which are appalling and horrendous, but we are still in desperate need of grace. We all need grace because we are all sinners. The difference is that some of us are in union with Christ, united to him in his life, death, and resurrection. Some of us have owned up to our sin. We've heard the demands of God's law, his holy, perfect law summed up in the Ten Commandments, and we know that we don't measure up to the standard of perfection that God expects of every human being. And so we have recognized our need of a Savior. We have trusted in Jesus, and we're now God's children through repentance and faith. But other than that, we're just like everybody else, aren't we? We sin, we struggle, we get stressed out, We yell at people going through the roundabouts. You know you do this. I'll raise my hand and say I do it. I speak to the other people in the cars as if they could hear me. As if I had this grand wisdom that I could pass on to them. You went in the wrong way, but you're not supposed to exit and enter that lane. Come on, as if they could hear me. Sometimes the language might be a little more colorful. I can admit that. Can you? You see, we're just as desperate as the world is. And indie musician Sufjan Stevens highlights our desperate need for grace in his song titled John Wayne Gacy Jr. In his song about John Wayne Gacy Jr., the serial killer known for dressing up as a clown and killing some 30 teenage boys in the 70s, Sufjan Stevens sings this about him and then goes on to say how broken all of us are. And the last last lines of the song are striking and haunting. He says this, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid, even in our best behavior, we're just like him. See, we're all desperate. We all need a savior. We all have secrets. So what God's law does is it comes to us and it comes along and it rips up the flooring of our hearts and exposes all of us. It lays it out for all to see. God's law exposes everything that we are hiding. It comes along and exposes all of our dirty little secrets. But the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't run from us. No, God doesn't run when he sees all that we've been hiding under the flooring of our hearts. God doesn't run away when all of our dirty little secrets are revealed. No, in that moment, grace rushes in when we are exposed. Grace rushes in to take away shame and guilt. The gospel offers hope to those who have been hiding stuff under the flooring of their hearts. This is how God's love works. This is how God's grace works. It comes to those who are willing to rip up the flooring of their hearts and say, look with your eyes and see, God, I need help. And that's David here. He wants God's love to intervene, to rescue him, and to move on his behalf. David is seeking refuge in God and not in himself and not in his own righteousness. David is desperate. David needs saving. We're all like David. We're all desperate. We all need a savior. And until you get that figured out, 
life won't make sense. Until you figure out that you need to be rescued from sin and self and the coming wrath of God, then life won't make sense. And until you realize that you need to be rescued from you every single day of your life, then life will not make sense. David figured it out, and that's why he prays the way he does in the next few verses. Look at verse 6. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. David's desperate. He's, he has hit rock bottom, and he has nowhere else to turn but up. So he turns to the Lord and he cries out to the only one who could rescue him. But it's what David actually prays here that's so exciting because the gospel is seeping out of verse seven. Do you see it with your eyes? David says, wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior. Now there's something very interesting happening here in in the Hebrew language. The ESV translates this phrase, uh, the, the Hebrew phrase as wondrously show your love, but literally it's make a distinction or separate. Now what in the world does David mean by this? What does he mean when he petitions to the Lord, make a distinction of your love, separate your love Well, this Hebrew word that David uses here is used three times in the book of Exodus in the plague narratives when the Lord strikes Egypt and Pharaoh with the plagues. And in Exodus 8.22, we're told that Yahweh declared that he would set apart or separate or make a distinction of the land of Goshen where the Israelites were so that they did not experience the plague of flies. And in Exodus 9.4, the Lord made a distinction between Egypt's cattle and Israel's cattle so that he did not strike Israel's cattle with the plagues. And then in Exodus eleven seven, the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. In other words, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, separated Israel from Egypt. He made a distinction between them and he did not send the plagues on his people. He separated Israel from Egypt By caring for them. And that's exactly what David is praying here when he uses the same word. David is saying, Lord, show up the way you did in the book of Exodus. Set me apart. Make a distinction between me and my enemies. Make your grace clear. Make it obvious. Let them know that you got my back. Make your love for me known. Put your wonderful love for me on display for all to see. Have you ever prayed this way when your back was against the wall? Have you ever prayed this way asking Jesus to make his grace obvious in your life when you're at the end of your rope or when you felt like you just couldn't go on? Well, guess what? You can. You can pray that God would make his grace obvious in your life. You can pray that God would make his love for you clear. And the reason you can pray this way is because God loves to show his love to desperate, stressed out, and scared to death sinners. Jesus loves to put his grace on display in your life. He loves to highlight his love for you by making it obvious for other people. To see. Commenting on this verse, Alan Ross says this 
For God to make his loyal love distinct means to demonstrate it in a new and extraordinary manner. Love in this context must mean what the love would do. His salvation of his people would be the outworking of his loyal love for those who put their faith in him. In other words, what he's saying is that God's love moves to action. It's not static. It's not sedentary. It didn't just sit there. God's love, God's grace has legs. It moves. It initiates. It takes action. It does things and acts on behalf of his people. God's love not only shows up, God's love shows up and wants to make an entrance. God's grace not only shows up in your life, God's grace wants to make an entrance. God's love and grace want to go on display in the lives of his people for his glory. There's another word here in verse seven. It's a famous Hebrew word, probably the most famous Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which often gets translated as loyal love or steadfast love. And you, we, if you've been here for the last four years, you've heard me talk about this word. It's a rich word. It's a, a dense word. It's, it's hard to capture all that this little word entails. It's this important Hebrew word that stresses the covenant nature of our God, the faithfulness of our God. And really, perhaps the best definition of the Hebrew word hesed comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones repeats over and over in the Bible that God's love, but I think it's a great definition of hesed, it's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's what David is asking for here. He's saying, Lord, wondrously show your love to me for all to see. Make your grace obvious in my life. Show up the way you did in the book of Exodus. Set me apart. Make a distinction between me and my enemies. Make your grace clear. Let them know that you got my back. Let them know that I'm your beloved Make your love for me known. Put your wonderful love for me on display for all to see. Make your never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love known and seen in my life. And that's how we ought to be praying grace, especially as we face a future, as we face culture and people who do not hold to the beliefs that we hold to in God's word. This is the prayer that we should be praying. Make your grace obvious. Make your love for your people known. God because we face an unknown we don't know what's going to happen in our country we don't know what's coming down the pipe but God make your grace clear make it obvious in our lives show the world that you love your people that you're faithful to them and guess what the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves to do this he loves to show up like this for people who turn to him for refuge And David knew that, and that's why he prays this way. He knows Yahweh's reputation. He knows that this is how the Lord rolls. And that's why he prays for protection in the next few verses. Look at verses eight and nine. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David is asking protection from these people who want to rip him to shreds. Literally, he says there, keep me as the apple of your eye. Literally, it's protect me as the little man of the eye. 
When David says the little man of the eye, he's referring to the pupil. The same phrase is used in Deuteronomy 32.10 to describe how the Lord protected Israel during the wilderness journeys. It says, he found him, Israel, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. By saying, keep me as the apple of your eye, Lord. Keep me as the little man of the eye. David is asking Yahweh to protect him the way that somebody would protect their own eyes. Think of it this way. It's like putting in eye drops. Does anyone else struggle to do this? I had a lot of people after the first sermon come up and say, that's me, I struggle too. Well, when we lived in Texas and I would mow the lawn, I would get these itchy eyes from all the dust and allergies that's thrown up in the air and I would go inside and try to put eye drops in my eyes and I would fail and have to ask Heather, my wife, to do it. It's like the suspense of waiting to see that one drop drop, you know? If I squeeze it too hard, 40 drops are coming out, but then you're like, you don't want to squeeze it too hard, so it just angles there and hangs you're like just get the suspense over this is worse than Alfred Hitchcock's suspense just come on I just couldn't do it myself and I could barely stand having Heather do it why because I'm hardwired to protect my eyes I don't want anything going in eyes are for seeing things for looking out they're not for things coming in to enter them and that's David's point here God protect me the way people protect their eyes Protect me the way that someone won't let anything into their eyes. And then he uses another image here. He talks about, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Protect me the way a mother hen protects her chicks. Surround me, wrap me in your arms. Don't let anything get to me. And the reason why David is praying this way is because he's desperate. He's scared to death. His back is against the wall. He's on death row. People want to take him out. His life was on the line. People want to kill him. They have his house surrounded. There have been drive-by shootings at David's house. David has real enemies who want nothing more than to see him dead, and they won't rest until David is zipped up in a body bag and sent off to a mortuary. Listen how he describes his enemies in verse 10. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's enemies are the real deal. They're arrogant, they're cocky, and they have David surrounded, and they have set their eyes to destroy David. That's all they can see. They see red, and they want to see David dead. And they're like lions, he says, who are waiting to jump out and rip him limb to limb. So David asked the Lord to take them down. Now what's strange here is that these people want to kill David, the servant of the Lord, and yet the Lord has been so good to them. The Lord has given David's enemies children that they can rejoice in. David's enemies can work hard and save up for their kids and leave them this nice inheritance, David says. But his enemies don't see that all of that is due to God's grace, his common grace. God is this good to unbelievers. 
God is good to bad people. Because bad people are all that there are, right? That's how good Jesus is. He will shower his common grace down on people who even hate him and hate his church. Common grace. But this is not saving grace. Saving grace is only for people who recognize their need of a savior. Those who reach the end of their rope. Those who have crashed and hit rock bottom spiritually. David's enemies only have hope in this life. In fact, this life, which is full of so much sorrow and pain, this life that we know is as close to heaven as unbelievers will get. This fallen world full of pain and hurt and agony and sickness and cancer and death, this is the closest to heaven that an unbeliever can get. And this fallen, sin-sick world is the closest to hell that believers will experience. So David has Yahweh's steadfast love in this life and in the life to come. That's what he means when he says in verse 15 that he will awake one day. He will behold his redeemer's face one day. He's talking about the resurrection. Until then, David's got 99 problems, but eternal life is not one of them. He's secure. He has found refuge in his redeemer. But he's got problems. People wanted to take his life. There was a bounty out on his head. And so David has no idea if he would live or die. He might wake up dead. And so in the last verse, when he says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness, he is talking about waking up in God's presence after he has died, whenever that would happen. And it might happen right after he finishes writing this psalm. David doesn't know. The point of Psalm 17 is not what David is enduring. The point of Psalm 17 is that we have a savior, we have a redeemer, one who can, we can turn to when we are desperate, when we are stressed out and we are scared to death. And the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have a savior who is unacquainted with our grief. Jesus knew what David was experiencing in this psalm because Jesus experienced this. Jesus was surrounded by enemies. I read it in Luke 4 this morning. Jesus said, I have come to preach the gospel liberty to the captives so the blind can see. And what does it say? It says, when they heard him, they took him to a cliff to throw him off. I've come to declare liberty, freedom for sinners who are lost in the chains of sin and selfishness. And what did they want to do? Let's take him to the cliff and push him off. Jesus knew what David was going through. Jesus was surrounded by enemies, surrounded by people who wanted to take his life, surrounded by people who would not rest until he was zipped up in a body bag and sent off to a mortuary. Jesus experienced drive-by shootings, if you will. Jesus experienced people surrounding his house and declaring that he'd come outside so that they could tear him limb from limb. So please understand this, Grace. You have a savior who is acquainted with darkness. A savior who did not get a pass on suffering. A savior who went through the valley of the shadow of death. A savior who went through hell for you in this life. A savior who has been there and done that. A savior who wants to give you grace, give you his light in your darkness. You may not have actual threats on your life. 
You may not be holed up in a cave with an army outside seeking to rip you limb by limb like a lion. Your face may not be on a wanted poster, but what Psalm 17 is stressing is still true for you. God loves to show his love to desperate, stressed out, scared to death sinners. And God's unconditional, steadfast love showed up most clearly at the cross when Jesus died in our place. God made his grace obvious at the cross. God wondrously showed his love at the cross. God made his grace obvious when Jesus died in our place. God showed his love for the desperate, stressed out, and scared to death at the cross. So know this about your Savior. Jesus loves to show his love to desperate people, to people who feel hopeless, to people who feel like giving up. Jesus loves to come alongside you when you are stressed out and you don't know what to do. You don't know what is happening in your life. You don't know why things are the way they are. Jesus lives to love you when you find yourself in those moments. And when you're scared to death and you can't breathe and you can't sleep and you toss and turn all night in your bed and you can't eat and you've lost your appetite and you're losing weight because you're not eating and you just feel like your world is crashing down around you, Jesus loves to show you his love in those moments. When you are at that place in your life, there is nowhere else that Jesus would rather be than right beside you giving you his grace. Does this psalm resonate with you today? Are you desperate, stressed out, scared to death about the future? What's gonna happen in our country? Where are things going? When you're at that place in your life, there is nowhere else that Jesus would rather be. When you're pulling your hair out and about to lose it, there is nowhere else that Jesus would rather be than right beside you. When you think you're about to lose your marbles, there is nowhere else that Jesus would rather be than right beside you. And when you are so overwhelmed that you think you can't take it anymore, there is nowhere else that Jesus would rather be than right beside you, giving you grace. David was desperate. David was stressed out. David was scared to death. But his eyes were on the Lord. And I think David... And perhaps you might find comfort in Jehoshaphat's prayer out of Second Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat, like David, was desperate, stressed out, and scared to death as armies marched toward him. And yet he prayed such a simple yet profound prayer. He said, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Sometimes that's all you can pray. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Sometimes all you can pray is put your wonderful love for me on display for all to see. Sometimes all you can pray is we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you you. The church has found herself in some very dark times 
And I'm afraid it's going to get much darker before we ever begin to see some light. We do not know what to do. We do not know what's coming in our future. We do not know what this world will look like, what this country will look like for Christians, for those who cling to the gospel and say Jesus is the only way and God's word is sufficient and God's word is the authority that we must submit to. We don't know what the future looks like. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Can't think of a better pray, prayer to pray at this time in our lives. Let's pray. Father, first we must confess our sin because so many of us have a sin of pride and self-righteousness. When we compare ourselves like David did with his enemies, we tend to get self-righteous and think we have our act together because we don't do those things that they do or struggle with those things that they struggle with. And sometimes we do. We lie. We deceive even our own hearts. So forgive us because there's no one perfect, only your son. Thank you for the perfect life that he lived, perfect death that he died, for raising him from the dead as we await his return. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We cling to it this morning. Lord, as things are changing so quickly in our country and in our world, we don't know what our future is going to be. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In Jesus' name, amen.